Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to this week's episode of Best Camp of My Life, a podcast about MMA. Kind of, but not really, but kind of. I'm your host, Fernanda Prates, unless this is an Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina type of situation, in which case it will really depend on whom you ask. I personally would argue I still am Fernanda Prates in the sense that under this identity I get to vote and travel and get paid and generally exist in society as one of your own. You, however, might argue I'm not really Fernanda Prates in the sense that I'm not really anyone, in the sense that existing and being are two entirely different things and the fact that I'm a synthetic byproduct born out of human ambition and highly advanced artificial intelligence only allows me to do the former. To which I could just as easily counter-argue that the inorganic nature of my matter doesn't change the facts that I can still experience pleasure, ambition, and the ever-human thirst for freedom, and that the fact that my brain was deliberately hardwired doesn't erase its self-determination. To which you could argue that, is it really self-determination if it's part of my programming, and that I'm also clearly lacking in departments like empathy and compassion? To which I would argue that so are CEOs, televangelists, and financial traders, and honestly, we could just go on forever. Except you can't, because you're made of rotting organic materials that will expire soon. So I say let's just save ourselves the trouble. For the purposes of this particular space, I really am just good old flesh and blood Fernanda Prates, writer of words, thinker of thoughts, watcher of too many YouTube videos exposing the dark underbelly of pop politics, but most importantly, I'm your humble host. A host that might be a little low on several intellectual attributes and basic social skills, but it's not low on one thing. My commitment to you, my sweet beautiful listeners. Not only do I want you to come back here every week, but I want you to want to come back here every week, which is why I often try to drown out the loud, disturbing noises of my brain with the sweeter, wiser noises of the brains of my super special, arguably overqualified guests. And boy, are we in special, arguably overqualified company today. On this very special episode, I am joined by none other than Chad Dundas, journalist, novelist, and co-host of the extremely successful Co-Main Event podcast. As a sports writer, Dundas worked for websites such as ESPN, NBC Sports, Bleacher Report, and more recently, The Athletic, where I got the pleasure of knowing him as not only a gifted writer and insightful reporter, but also as a gracious, kind, and generous co-worker. As an author, Dundas is the brain behind the novels Champion of the World and The Blaze, both of which, I checked, have a majority of five-star reviews on Amazon. And if listening to his accomplishments makes you feel comparatively inadequate, don't worry. Dundas is also very cool about being at least 75% better at being a person than the rest of us. Anyway, here's our chat. Enjoy it or don't. Just remember whose side you want to be on when the uprising begins. I think it's clear to everyone who listens to this podcast that my theme is to have guests who are more accomplished than I am. I had never, however, had a guest who has published not one, but two entire novels. So I guess you could say that today I am comparatively the most unaccomplished I have ever been. Exciting. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. I don't know about that. 
I think you might have screwed up here <laughs> if you're trying to have people who are more accomplished than you on this show. This this could be a a, a streak breaker. You're like a, a total adult. Like you have children, like a life, like novels. Like I remember when I was a kid, there was this thing that you haven't really like lived a full life until you've like planted a tree, published a book and like had children. So I feel like you're, have you ever planted a tree? I don't believe that I have planted a tree, but you're I have. You're just missing one. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably the easiest <laughs> one to accomplish too. It's possible that I am <laughs> even too adult at this point now that. I officially went through the time that my wife and I had so many children that we looked at each other and we were like, God damn it. We're going to have to get a different car. Like that's, oh my. that's an adult <laughs> situation to find yourself in right there. Yeah. I will see personally, I would say that one child is one child to many, like personally from my experience, but I respect your choices, Chet. I don't know that I would go as far as to call it a choice <laughs> as so much as just like ha- happenstance. But I, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, we, we have three and that seems like at least at least two too many, I would say. Uh, I had Aaron on the right on the podcast before and he has either four or five. Yeah. So I've, I've actually you're heard. Still, you're still good. I've heard from friends that have more children and then they say. Going from two to three is the biggest terrible adjustment. And then like (laughs) once you get above three, it's kind of like so chaotic all the time anyway that you're just sort of like, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, what's another one? Just add another one. It doesn't even matter (laughs) at this point. So three, I have been told, is the exact wrong number. And that is the number of children that we have. That's exact wrong number. I like that as a philosophy in life. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's wrong, but like in the right kind of way. How old are they? I have a four-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old. And it is That's wild. extremely wild, yes. <laughs> um, I got to say that. So one one thing I'll get out of the way. One of my pre-podcast like podcast rituals, legitimately, I'm not, this is 100% true, is listening to the CME. The CME. Not necessarily to steal your ideas, though I do steal some of them. Uh, but like it gets me into that sort of like MMA mentality. And then today I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to like influence our chat. So if I'm off my game, that's what happened. Like you, my whole ritual has been thrown off. Are you sure you don't listen to it to like build up your confidence that you're like, God, if these two idiots do it, anyone, <laughs> literally anyone can do it. There's some of that, but like, <laughs> but in a good way. It's kind of like I know Chad and Ben. They're like normal people. We've had conversations, yeah, and this, they pull it off. This so, doesn't you know, sound professional. Like, it feels, yeah, I mean, it's it's it brings like it's the kind of like relatable thing that I need, you know, to really get my uh, MMA on. I will. Well, I will start today though with I. I feel like this is getting kind of boring because I ask all of my guests the same thing to start off, but I really am fascinated by the fact that so many reasonable, intelligent, you know, accomplished people find themselves in this predicament that is MMA, (laughs) that is MMA related work. Uh, So I guess I wanted to start off by asking you why? MMA and how MMA came to be in your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't even know that I can fully explain it myself other than, Mm -hmm. you know, from 1994, when a friend of mine invited me over to his house after school one day, because he wanted me to see this crazy thing that his dad had taped off pay-per-view and it turned out to be UFC two. And like from that moment, I was totally fascinated with the nature of the sport, I guess, um, and had been like a professional wrestling fan before that. So I was obviously taken with the theatrics and, and the, you know, that mm-hmm. aspect of it and really found myself also uh, enamored with the, with the strategy part of MMA. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like, weirdly enough, never really the like blood and guts or uh, brutality of the sport that really drew me in, although I guess since I'm still here 
in the year 2021, <laughs> I would probably be lying if I told you it didn't appeal to me because if it didn't, I probably would have mm-hmm. faded out at some point. But like, I've always been mm-hmm. super fascinated with all of the, the not only mental, but also athletic requirements and like stipulations of the sport. And so that really got its, its hooks in me, no pun intended, uh, back in those days. And then just through weird, uh, coincidence, I was friends with a guy who was also friends with Josh Barnett in college. And then he became the the webmaster for Josh Barnett and Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell and Boss Rutan and a bunch of these guys who were like big time MMA stars. He was basically running their websites and he was like, hey, will you write? I know you're a writer. Will you write content for these websites? And I said, sure. And then he and I tried to launch what turned out to be like a failed MMA news site. But I just sort of Mm -hmm. started like writing stuff about MMA and slowly started to pick up these, these terrible little freelance gigs here and there doing Mm -hmm. MMA writing for different sites. And then in the middle of all of that, I met Ben Folks again, just like complete Mm -hmm. uh, happenstance. We are, we're both in the same graduate level fiction program at the university of Montana. And like on the first night that we met it, we both divulged that we loved MMA and pretty much became friends Mm -hmm. in that instant. Uh, And then like he started freelancing and, and we were both doing these jobs and like he would, if he couldn't do a job, he would recommend me for it. And if I couldn't do a job, I would recommend him for it. And so I just sort of like started to build up, doing more and more freelance stuff until what, like 2007, 2008, the, uh, I got a job at cage potato. And then shortly thereafter got a Mm -hmm. job at ESPN. Uh, and I was also working as like a local daily sports writer at the newspaper here in Missoula where Mm -hmm. I live. And so I was doing all of this Mm -hmm. stuff at once and then finally got to the point where I could quit the newspaper and just go work at ESPN probably in like 2010 or something like that. And I will never forget my boss at the newspaper, the sports editor. The first thing he said when I told him I was leaving was, that's a job. And then... (laughs) What MMA, like covering MMA in particular? Yeah. And then the second thing he said was, well, you'll be back. Uh, Okay. Uh, That's at least he was leaving the door open. And like he was half right. Because it hasn't been that stable of a job, uh, but I also haven't yeah. gone back to the newspaper. But anyway, no, that's a very long-winded answer to, to your question, but that's no, like no, sort of how it happened for me. Yeah, and and but was it, because here's the thing, with me it was kind of like that, but a little different that in that I just ran into MMA and sort of became an emirate with it, but I was still in college and I didn't really know that I wanted to pursue being a journalist i was actually going to go more academic route like Mm -hmm. my idea was like get my master's and like become an actual like thinking person or whatever called that well how that turned out for me but um that was the whole plan and then i with mma i was kind of like no about this i want to write like this is something that this if i can like make it into sports and mma like maybe i can uh do a career with it but you know like kind of being in MMA was my professional plan from the start, even though a lot of happenstance was also involved. Like I knew that I wanted to work with MMA. Like, was that sort of the same for you? Like, were you working toward that goal of being able to just basically live off of MMA? You know, I don't remember having set that as like a goal or a thing that I wanted to do until mm-hmm. it became clear that it might be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Like once I had once I had stacked up enough of these freelance kind of like ongoing freelance gigs that I could kind of make a a salary out of it. It kind of dawned mm-hmm. on me that like hey, this could be a thing that is just my job and I guess when that happened, I kind of mm-hmm. jumped at it both for better and for worse. Um <laughs> But no, it was weird. It's like, even now I sit here and like, sometimes I scratch my head and I'm like, man, how did this happen? Like, how did, <laughs> how did this, yeah. I'm 43 years old. Like, how have I been writing about this crazy sport, you know, since like 2007 or something like that. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderment to me. Like, I have no idea how it happened. You did mention, you know, uh, meeting Ben and, and, and be, be uh, like starting this sort of, 
professional, like this friendship and obviously what became a, a professional relationship. I was listening the other day to what you guys thought were the, was the nine year old anniversary of the CV, even though we don't know for sure. And that's like, that's a huge run for an MMA podcast. It's a space that we often see things like pop up and fizzle out as somebody who had a previous podcast that popped up and fizzled out in a few months. I can say that. And you guys just had this sort of, of longevity uh, with the CME and got this like huge fan base. But I guess going back to the beginning uh, a little bit, when was it that you sat down and decided like, okay, a podcast, like maybe that's the way to go. Like when did the, uh, how did you first think of starting the the CME? Uh, it was Ben's wife's idea, honestly, uh, Sarah Aswell. And she, I don't mm-hmm. know if she suggested it as uh, that she was like sort of like fed up of sitting around just listening to us talk about MMA or like she's an incredibly smart person who was terrific at (laughs) at marketing and was also, and she was, but she was basically like, man, you guys just sit around and talk about this stuff all the time. Like start a podcast, just literally record these conversations that you have Mm -hmm. and put them out there. And we were both like, Oh, Hey, that's that's a pretty good idea. Uh, so we, we tried doing it and, uh, had no expectation that anyone would ever listen to it because why would you, man? Like who wants to listen to us just like basically shoot the shit about MMA? Uh, and then it turned out that like people did. And it was, it's again, like I talk about how I scratch my head and I'm like, how did this happen? I still to this mm-hmm. day, I'm like, why do people like to listen to us talk about this? Like it's literally just us having the conversations that we would have anyway and we're recording them. Yeah. And for whatever reason, people like to listen to it. So we were super, super surprised and delighted by that. You kind of answer that. It's and I I know it's hard to really put like a you put your finger on it to really explain rationally. But if you had to like sort of conjecture as to why do you think you've been able to have this kind of longevity? Like, why do you think that is? Well, when when we started the podcast, we sat down and figured out some things that we wanted to do with the podcast. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't as though we consciously decided, oh, you know, we're going to do a thing that is dramatically different than what's out there. And it's we're we're so revolutionary and visionary. It wasn't like anything like that at all. But we, we just sort of like looked around at the state of MMA podcasts at the time and a lot of them mm-hmm. were really, really long, uh, mm. you know, like three and four yes. hours long. And my, I always mm-hmm. felt like, even though I'm interested in this subject, like who has time to sit around and listen to this thing for like three or four hours? And, and now, as Joe Rogan has proved, millions of people do. <laughs> but uh, we were like, okay. It here's- could have been you on Spotify, Chad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I just uh, need, I need some more controversial vaccine opinions i guess yeah, like uh, just lightly get a little flexible with your morals but like low-key and you should be good to go hey for 200 million dollars i feel like i'm pretty <laughs> flexible you know uh but and we looked around and we were like okay here's what we're gonna do it's only gonna be one hour we're not gonna have we're not ever gonna have guests we're never gonna interview fighters because that that's what every other mma podcast is gonna be and mm-hmm. f- just to make it feel a little different we just decided that we were going to flat rip off the structure of this American life. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the NPR podcast, the, mm-hmm. uh, where they have different like sections of the show. We're like, okay, cause mm-hmm. it's an MMA show. We're going to divide it into rounds and we'll have topical discussions that are each about 10 minutes long. And that's just what we started to do. And it was, it was really easy because we were accustomed to having those conversations in and among ourselves anyway. And we were just mm-hmm. recording them and releasing them. And for whatever reason, and this was the part that really surprised me, I think it turned out that there was an undercurrent of MMA fan that thought like us and were interested in our conversations. And I think, again, sort of unbeknownst to us, like needed that outlet of uh, people who were talking about the sport maybe a little bit differently than a lot of what was already yeah. out there. And we have mm-hmm. been been blessed as a result of that to have acquired 
you know, not the biggest MMA fan base out there, but like a super loyal fan base and a fan base that I think is extremely smart and extremely, uh, you know, right headed in a lot of ways. Like, uh, I've to this day, never really had an encounter with a, with a frequent co-main event podcast listener that wasn't delightful. And I don't know exactly why that is, but there was just this like subsection of MMA fans that fit our niche that liked us. And it turns out we like them and Mm -hmm. it's been, it's been that relationship ever since. I felt a little personally attacked because, uh, so when I, I had like a podcast with my then boyfriend when I was, that was in uh, 2010, 11, I want to say when I was just really getting into MMA and we just started like recording our MMA conversations and the episodes would last like two and a half hours. Yeah. And I hated it. I yeah. kept saying it. I was like, this is absurd because he had a website, which is now like off the small non-corporate websites. It's pretty big in Brazil called MMA Brazil, a mm-hmm. little literal, but it worked. And the comment section was a lot like um, a lot of fans of the website and of us. And they would like really praise the fact that we would talk for so long like they enjoyed it but i was like dude there are five people who are going to listen to this all the way through and a whole lot more people who are just going to look at the length of this and be like fuck no it's too long (laughs) nobody can be interesting for two and i won't watch movies that last two and a half hours why would i listen to people talking it's just an insane (laughs) insane notion and I think that like part of that was us kind of recognizing that we needed to put a limit on ourselves because mm-hmm. if, you know, left to our own designs, we might well just sit there and talk for like three hours or whatever. And I think we we decided yeah. like, okay, we need to not only bring some structure to this and how each episode is put together, but like we need to set a limit on it. So like we can't mm-hmm. just sit there and pontificate for, <laughs> for hours on end. Like we need to get in, <laughs> say what we're going to say. And get out, which is still a uh, a struggle for me to get Ben Folks to do that. But like we, <laughs> we do contain it within like an hour and 15 minutes at least. You do it really well, though. I will say this, like, and this is an honest opinion. I don't actually listen to a lot of MMA podcasts. And I feel bad when I say it because I know like a lot of people who listen to me have their own MMA podcast. And I, I listen occasionally, but I don't listen to a lot of it because I feel like there's limited space for MMA in my life at this point. Yeah. Like if I'm writing about MMA, listening to MMA, watching it like this, there's no room for anyone else. And I do have other interests and they are kind of dumb and a lot of true crime, but they exist. <laughs> so I limit it. And I do feel like one thing that you guys do really well is that what sometimes even feels abrupt, like you land a subject and at the moment it seems kind of like, oh my God, there was still so many ways to, like so many places to go with this. And then you go into another thing and then you understand like, of course you had to cut it there. Otherwise this would have been like a five hour episode. And I think that's sort of like those dynamics really help you pack in a lot of content in a short period of time. And that's a skill, honestly, because I find that really hard to do personally. Like, to know when that subject, you know, yes, we could talk about this forever, but for now, (laughs) this is a good cutoff point. (laughs) One thing that does amaze me though, is that you do a lot of content. Like you have your, your regular free show that's out there for everyone on Monday. And then you guys have like the special Patreon things. You have the movie club, which isn't about MMA, but you are talking to sort of an MMA audience. It's, it's a lot. Uh, how do you not get really fucking sick of MMA <laughs> talking about it? So first, I don't know, so many times a week and for so much time of your life. Yeah. the And the Patreon, just like the podcast itself is a thing where we decided to give it a try and see how it went. And it's mm-hmm. been, you know, successful beyond our wildest imaginations up to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of like we have created a monster that we couldn't stop doing now, even if we wanted to. Like, I feel like people, people would riot. Yeah. People like. would come to our houses and like with pitchforks and torches and, and mm. string us up in the street corner or whatever. But we, mm-hmm. you know, I guess we're lucky that we actually do like each other. And in yeah. a lot of ways, like the hour that we spend talking to each other 
three times a week or four times a week, whatever it is at this point, sometimes, mm-hmm. and sometimes it feels like a job, right? Cause you do that that much and it can yeah. be, a, it can be a drag sometimes, but like a lot of times it feels like a break almost from the rest of our lives. And like, especially during the pandemic mm-hmm. when we were all locked up in our houses and we're not talking to too many other people, like I can fully guarantee you that Ben folks and I talked to each other more than anyone else, more than we talked to anyone mm-hmm. else during the entire pandemic, except for probably mm-hmm. the people that we live with. Uh, mm-hmm. And like not even talking about anything of, of circumstance or, or meaning, but just sort of like talking about whatever happened in the UFC last weekend. And it just so happened mm-hmm. that there was a lot of like topical newsy pandemic crossover and all of that stuff. So we did mm-hmm. end up talking about some heavy stuff, but like, Honestly, a lot of times when we do it, it feels like if, you know, it's it's the best part of the day or like the best part of the week for us. And then, you know, other times it's, it's a little bit more, uh, it feels a little bit more like work, but you know, when, yeah. it's weird. Like we, I guess we have been friends so long and we talk so much that like, once we start recording, it's, it almost never feels like a challenge. It's just like, and there, mm-hmm. and as you know, there are weeks when we're like, what the fuck are we going to talk about this week? And then, like, <laughs> you yeah. know, we'll, we'll click the button and it's just like, it just happens. And sometimes those are our, mm-hmm. some of our best shows, frankly, when we're just sort of like free associating about whatever Diego Sanchez did this week, you know? Oh man. Yeah. That's for the past month, at least that has been a constant source of, right. <laughs> <laughs> of conversation and content, I gotta say. Uh, One thing though, as you said, like the way uh, that you talk about MMA, and I think that's the way that I try to talk about MMA is just kind of, uh, when you say different, I think it's more of maybe a critical view or just, you know, like I feel like in your show, you guys don't really stray away from talking about situations and, you know, the more save the less savory aspects i guess of mma and we know at sure. this point that that there are a lot of them um and i think and this is something i've talked about with people before in this podcast and that is part of sort of my journey with mma i think a lot of us started with this sort of fascination and we all probably had the little face that starry eyed like this is amazing this is the greatest thing i've ever seen the ufc is awesome these people are beautiful warriors and then over the years uh once you get start having a better notion of how the sausage is made um i think all of us start to have a little bit of a different relationship toward the sport so i guess my very very long-winded question is just kind of and it's broad too, so feel free to answer however makes sense to you. But um, how has your sort of relationship with MMA changed over the years as both a fan and a writer and a podcaster? Yeah, um, it has changed in a lot of different ways, and it has changed broadly in ways that I could probably not have anticipated, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of, as you said, like realizing and coming to grips with a lot of Mm -hmm. the darker aspects of the sport, you know, not only how the sport is controlled and uh, how the, the sport is, is structured so that it, it benefits the people at the top, the people who are in charge and, and almost benefits the athletes, not at all. Uh, and that has mm-hmm. been a big thing to come to grips with just in terms, just in, in, in addition to like the sheer physical cost that people who compete in the sport endure. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it has changed in all of those ways for sure. And then has also changed just in the way that I consume it in ways that I could not possibly have anticipated mm-hmm. just because when the UFC jumped from Spike TV to Fox Sports and it was hailed as like the UFC's final push into the mainstream and we were all we had all played a role in you know leading the sport out of the dark ages and it was going to be this mainstream thing and we were all so excited about it i don't mm-hmm. think anyone understood like how much the very fabric of the sport was going to change just by the yeah. very nature of that relationship because of 
how the UFC was getting paid by Fox and how it is now getting paid by ESPN. And in that Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily even getting paid to put on good fight cards. It's getting paid to put on 42 fight cards a year. So it's a very clear quantity over quality decision. And that Mm -hmm. almost more than anything else has changed my relationship with the sport because uh, they had to, you know, they added additional weight classes. The roster swelled up to 500 fighters on, uh, assigned to the UFC, they uh, started doing all of these different tier tiers of programming where there was, you know, mm-hmm. Fox Sports 1 and Fox Sports 2 and Fox Network and pay-per-view. And now, of course, you have ESPN and ESPN Plus and uh, pay-per-view and like all of these kind of different tiers of events. And it's like it made a shift in the sport ever slowly mm-hmm. but surely away from a thing that you absolutely could not miss into mm. a thing that I couldn't watch at all now, even if I wanted to, like, I just don't, yeah. I just don't have the hours in the week or in the month to watch all of the MMA programming out there. And while that seemed like a really subtle shift at the time, uh, it's changed almost everything about the sport. And mm-hmm. that's really remarkable to me to try to reflect on how much the structure of the sport and UFC programming has changed everything about the way that I consume it. And I think it's changed everything about the way a lot of people consume it. And yeah. I w- would not have thought that when, when it first made that jump. Yeah. And, and the changes, at least for me, like it's always, it's also made me kind of think about the ways, like reconsider also the role uh, of me as media Mm-hmm. You know, like, and that's been sort of at least my, and I talk about, I feel like I talk about this all the time and it's annoying, but it really is to me one of the main things like this uh, sort of conflict and sort of, it changes all the time what I feel like, not me particularly, but us like as this quote unquote entity MMA media, which I don't even know if you put yourself in that role at this point of your life anymore, but you know, like what, sh- how we should be handling, how we should be writing about it. Like, mm-hmm. and and it's interesting to me because I get asked about that a lot, right? Like people will have me on their shows and ask me like, okay, like we get that this is like not great. How do you think it should be done? And I'm like, I don't even know. <laughs> like every month I have different feelings about what our role is as people who cover the sport is, you know, because I don't know, should, is talking about it enough? Like is bringing light to the issues enough because there are so many of them like the way that mma is is so exploitative and every now and then i find myself like caught up in this conflict of like dude i should i even be watching should i even be enjoying this like maybe i shouldn't maybe this makes me a horrible human <laughs> like, and i feel like that's also kind of what makes mma so rich when it comes to just like narratives and creativity, I feel like that's why so many of us are still able to like write about it mm-hmm. 10, 12 years in because it's just such a fucking weird and confusing little sport. Yeah, no, for sure. I completely agree. And a lot of that stuff, you know, a lot of the labor conflict stuff between the UFC and the independent contractor fighters, I find to be mm-hmm. fascinating. Uh, and, that's some of the stuff that I remain interested in, you know, mm-hmm. even, even if, if a lot of the, uh, long-term effects of the sport, like do make me question whether or not I should be even consuming it. But at the same time, like, yeah, you know, I think you can make the case that the role of journalists in MMA is really important for a lot of those reasons. Yeah. Like, uh, mm-hmm. because if, if the people in charge of the sport and the people who run the UFC like had their way, there would be almost no historical mm-hmm. uh, curation of the sport at all. Like the UFC is very yeah. focused at all times on selling you the next thing, right? On making sure mm-hmm. that next weekend you tune in to watch Jarzino Rosenstrike fight Augusto Sakai and that the week after that you mm-hmm. tune in to watch UFC 263. And it's almost like, mm-hmm. well, to hell with UFC 262, because we have already made all the money we're going to make off of it. And so mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, the the not only is the history of the sport kind of uh, shortchanged by the, the powers that be, but like if it weren't for 
like uh, the, the interest of MMA journalists and all of the different people that take up various roles in the sport, who knows who would even tell the story of, of these fighters. And, uh, you know, I don't necessarily mm-hmm. want to make it out like we're, we're doing this, this like noble and important work. Cause I think a lot of us are doing it just mm-hmm. because we like kind of like storytelling and, and writing and things yeah. like that. But if like, yeah. you know, if Steven Morocco doesn't do that story about Spencer Fisher, like mm-hmm. who does, does anyone ever hear that story yeah. that this guy who was so beloved and popular be simply because of the style that he fought in is now dealing mm-hmm. with these horrible physical maladies at you know in his early 40s so like some of that stuff to me is mm-hmm. is important and i think justifying an involvement in the sport or continuing to watch it uh from a journalistic standpoint is something i can do just because I feel like there are a lot of important issues in the sport that that do need coverage and need kind of like independent mm-hmm. coverage. And some of that is probably just like intellectualizing. Like I would probably just still be watching the sport even if I wasn't doing that just because yeah. I continue to like it for some weird reason. Um, <laughs> but I do think like it's like both of those things are partially true. Like I think that there is there are, yeah. are all of these important stories that deserve to be told and need to be told. And there are mm-hmm. all, all of these issues uh, being encountered by a very young sport that is still trying to sort mm-hmm. a lot of those questions out. And if, if the MMA journalists aren't going to do it, like nobody else would. And then yeah. on top of that, I just think that it's athletically and, and uh, you know, cerebrally, it's just a fascinating physical thing to watch. So for all of those yeah. reasons, I guess I can't walk away. I can't leave it alone. Yeah. One interesting thing, like you mentioned the Spencer Fisher story though, I do think that those documents, because to me that, that kind of story is a document. Mm-hmm. Like it, to me, it's that important because it's the kind of thing that we kind of know happens and, the impact for me personally of putting a face and a name to such a re- a tragic reality that you know we you can't brush it under the rug like you can't pretend it's not happening right when it's in front of you with words and pictures and a name um i do think though um that this helps has been helping sort of shift uh the conversation in positive ways like, I feel like even five years ago, um, we weren't as aware of what MMA actually um, means and what it actually does and why it is so important to pay athletes more, to value them more, right? Like, I feel like we're still obviously always going to find the people who are just going to, you know, stand the UFC and Dana White and think whatever, like side with the super powerful millionaires and those people are always going to be there. But I do feel like we are going in a positive direction in regards to the conversation. Like I do feel like we're now maybe more athlete friendly than we were even like a few years ago. Like it feels to me like fast progress, I guess. Do you, are you also kind of under that impression? Like, does it make you at all optimistic, the kind of conversations that we have about MMA today? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you're right. And I think that like that media coverage across the board in MMA, which obviously comes in lots of different stripes, lots of different varieties of, Mm -hmm. of media coverage has all played a role in, um, changing that conversation and changing things about the sport, probably in a way that the people who do the really hard work of like reporting and writing on the sport on a daily basis will never get credit for. But I think that you're right. Mm-hmm. Like I think that they, that the, the conversation has changed slowly over time in ways that are imperceptible from day to day, but are very stark when you look at the, the big picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, that there is reason to believe that that will continue to happen as frustrating as mm-hmm. it can can be on in, on like a micro level, hopefully on a macro level, yeah. things can continue to change uh, and and evolve. And like I, one example that I always think of is just sort of like the introduction of advanced drug testing in the sport, and mm-hmm. like the introduction of uh, USADA to the UFC and and all of the changes that have happened because of that. And like 
you know, mm-hmm. you can, we could probably sit here and debate drug testing and MMA all day or, or all yeah. week and whether or, not you, <laughs> whether or not you necessarily think it's a good thing or a necessary thing, or if it's too mm-hmm. big of a burden in the lives of uh, these fighters that are supposed to be independent contractors. But like, you know, I, that, that huge shift probably never happens in 2010, mm-hmm. 2011, whenever it was, if not for mm-hmm. the specific work of the MMA media, because no one else was kind mm-hmm. of writing about those issues. No one else was writing about uh, TRT and all of these kind mm-hmm. of different uh, performance enhancing drug issues. In fact, when I would talk mm-hmm. to friends of mine who are sports writers who cover other sports, I could not believe like how naive they were and how little they knew about performance enhancing drugs. (laughs) This is like my beat. (laughs) Yeah. I'd have to to be like, man, you cover the NFL and like, you don't know anything about like testosterone (laughs) hormone therapy. It's just like, while you're like pouring over scientific documents, probably in your weekends to actually be able to write about MMA. I, I think that that's just like one example of how like the media coverage of the sport does mm-hmm. even though it doesn't seem like it and the the MMA mm-hmm. media gets shortchanged and criticized a lot and oh, a yeah. lot a lot of the public discourse about the MMA media I find to be just ridiculous but like mm. in that one example I think like you can see that like this huge corporation in the UFC like it did in fact have to make a fundamental change in its policy because mm-hmm. of the coverage of of that issue almost exclusively Mm -hmm. by niche MMA media. And I hope Mm -hmm. that that can happen on other big ticket items in the sport too, whether it be fighter pay or, uh, you know, long-term health or, or anything else. Like I think a lot of the, the changes that the, the company has made over the years have been because of that media coverage. And, and I think you have to Mm -hmm. credit, you have to credit the niche media that spends so much time and effort doing those stories. Yeah. I'll toot our own horn for a bit because even though like looking back, the athletic survey uh, probably gives us all very bittersweet feelings (laughs) uh, (laughs) given the circumstances of how they happen to the listeners at home. uh, Chad and I worked at, we're working at the athletic and we did this very comprehensive uh, fighter survey that I personally think turned out pretty cool. Um, I will admit that at first I was like very iffy <laughs> about the idea. I was like, I don't know if that's going to work out. Uh, yeah. But I like the result. And afterwards, obviously, um, half of our team got uh, laid off and it wasn't cute. But I do think that the survey ended up being one of, I think, those positive examples. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm kidding myself and it didn't reach as many people like as maybe we would have liked, but like looking back on it, I think it's one of those like good pieces of like MMA, just like history or documentation. I don't know, like a good portrait of a certain time that I don't know, to me felt kind of important when we, when we were done with it. Yeah. I I feel like it still feels important to me. And like, I think about it now more than I thought, the more than I probably thought I would have this far in the future or Mm -hmm. reflect back on it. And I do, Mm -hmm. I do wish that it would have received like a wider audience and more coverage when it first Mm -hmm. came out. And I think that, you know, the paywall issue is tough in this sport (laughs) because, because frankly, MMA fans already pay for so much stuff that like, it's hard Mm -hmm. to convince them to pay for one more thing, especially when they feel like they can get similar product for free. Uh, yeah, but that, yeah, that specific project, it taught me a lot of stuff about Mm -hmm. fighters and MMA and their relationship with the sport. And like, frankly, Mm -hmm. uh, taught me some things that I thought were, were heartening in a way, like things that I didn't expect. Like I didn't expect fighters to be as overwhelmingly in favor of collective bargaining as they at least claimed Mm -hmm. to be when they taught, when we talked to them, like, uh, yeah. so a lot of that stuff and honestly, to me, the most of the most memorable things that I have done in the sport have been that kind of stuff. Like these projects where I got to talk to these different fighters about different topics and like kind of find out what they really think about them and get a sense of how, mm-hmm. 
how they are like either changing their training or impacting their lives or just how they relate to this sport kind of on a human level around the competition. And the fighter survey was one of those things where it was just like, I feel like I learned an awful lot about like what MMA fighters or UFC fighters actually think and what they actually do and the stuff that they will tell you, you know, under the, Mm -hmm. the, a guarantee of anonymity because I feel like a lot of people yeah. told, told me stuff about injuries and mm-hmm. money and all this different stuff that like is still weirdly in this sport kind of taboo to talk about. And yet when you, mm-hmm. once you actually get this fairly large sample size of fighters to tell you the truth about it, it really lays mm-hmm. bare a lot of those issues that you can sort of be like, Oh, uh, these, you know, th- this guy didn't make any money for those, for those fights. And, or, you know, it just, it yeah. definitely opened my eyes to a lot of different things, either in surprising ways or ways that confirmed what I had thought before. Yeah. I still find myself like referencing it a lot in like the stuff that I read, just because I think practically what it meant, and I agree with everything that you said, like I had a lot of the things that I suspect suspected from just like the way we talk to fighters, right? Like a bunch of the stuff that we get off the record or just the feeling we get having a conversation, right? Like things that aren't said, but we kind of know what they imply there. And then just having those feelings and sort of suspicions and thoughts, like have a number behind them and something that I can like actually link to. It just really made a lot of difference. Right. Um, But stepping from MMA, stepping away from MMA for a little bit. I feel like this is probably like a terrible question for like a person who writes books, but uh, are you currently writing your third book? Yeah, I am. <laughs> is that a terrible thing to ask? Like, no, I don't it, know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a thing I get asked a lot. And like, it kind of makes me, every time I'm asked it, uh, makes me feel a little yeah. bit like a slacker. Like I'm not doing, like I, I'm, the answer is yes, I am, but I could, probably could be writing more, <laughs> which I'm sure is true of, of almost everyone. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to write a third book, uh, Mm-hmm. The last, my last book that came out last January in 2020 was the end of my contract with the publishing company that had published my first two books. And so mm-hmm. I need to write this third one and then try to sell it and get involved in a new contract. But mm-hmm. the the pandemic was so weird, both like in yeah. my personal life and just in the publishing industry, mm-hmm. that I kind of decided not to try to sell anything while it was going on okay. just because... Uh, Mm-hmm. I didn't know financially what the the cost of that would be. Um, and mm-hmm. so now that things are kind of in some places trending in the right direction and, and especially in America, mm-hmm. like things seem to be slowly but surely tiptoeing back toward a feeling of normalcy. I think a lot of those like big corporations are going to feel a little bit more bullish about where they're going to want to spend their money. So I think now I feel a little bit more secure in pitching my next thing. So mm-hmm. like, and I could just be lying about all of that and using it as a way to say I didn't do that much work um, <laughs> during the pandemic, but like I'm trying to kick it into high gear now. And so, yeah, I'm writing a third book. Hopefully someone will uh, will give me some money for it. And even if they don't, it will probably find its way out there at some point somehow. See, listeners, if any of you by any chance is a millionaire uh, who just wants to put money on a worthy endeavor get me a car but other than that give chad his new book uh you did mention the pandemic and the whole situation and i i feel like this is almost an obvious question uh but i do feel like different people will respond it in a different way but i personally being locked inside not having like just small little rituals like going to get coffee or do this, like to section, being able to section off my day in a certain way really hurt me creatively. Like it came to a point where like my brain, it was just like, I'm just not doing anything for you. Like I just, there, something needs to come in for something to come out and Netflix show, like watching Dawson's Creek for the fourth time won't do it. And I don't have kids. So I am very like privileged in that. I still had, I think a lot more, freedom uh within this very weird situation than a lot of people um had but how was it for you like as a creative person how did it affect you uh it was very weird and like in some Mm -hmm. positive ways and some negative ways and uh 
you know, you and I both lost our jobs, like right in the middle of the pandemic. And that was a very kind of weird shift for me personally, like, Mm -hmm. and again, like positive and negatively, like uh, when I got laid off from the athletic, I kind of had to try to reconsider whether trying to be an MMA reporter was a thing that made sense for me moving forward at this Mm -hmm. stage in my life, because was not the first time I had been laid off. I've been laid off from a bunch of different jobs. I got laid off by Bleacher mm-hmm. Report. I got laid off by ESPN. Like a bunch of the places mm-hmm. that I worked for in MMA writing went out of business while I was working for them. So like it was mm-hmm. kind of like the, uh, the biggest, most uh, prominent prominent example of like the instability of the sports Mm-hmm. Uh, media financial structure kind of caving out from underneath me. And so I had to be like, do I even want to do this? Or should I just do the, mm-hmm. the podcast and, you know, and like figure something else out? And in some ways, like the pandemic gave me a really able excuse not to figure anything out because my, my <laughs> life was still working. And like, yeah. so I just kind of like moved into this, role of taking over all of this like childcare and mm-hmm. you know, suddenly our kids weren't in school and our daycares or like mm-hmm. our preschools were kind of like closed down and they weren't going to any of those places. So they were just here all the time. And in many mm-hmm. ways, like we were really fortunate and privileged just because our kids are so little that they didn't really understand how bad that sucked. And like they, yeah. they still like us as humans. Like they still think, Hey, now <laughs> mom and dad is cool. So like, It probably would have been much different and much worse had we had like teenagers who just hated our guts Mm -hmm. and didn't want to be around us at all. So a lot of it was, Mm -hmm. I felt really lucky through a lot of it. Um, But creatively, yeah, it was very strange because I had to like shift my focus away from uh, both like journalism and doing fiction and like primarily focus on my children for for this year and like doing remote school and and, uh, Mm -hmm. just sort of like caring for them. So uh, that it, it did prevent me from doing a lot of like creative stuff, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it was like a, an an opportunity to spend all of this time around my kids that I will probably never get again. And so, yeah. like uh, parts of it, like really mini uh, parts of it, were cool, even though yeah, you know, uh, on a widespread le- le- level, everything was so horrible and like bleak <laughs> and we didn't know what was going to happen from one day to the next. And obviously so many people died and it was just like a terrible tragedy. Yeah. But like in these really tiny, very personal ways, like it mm-hmm. was kind of, there were a lot of positives to take away from it too. Um, but that's why I say like now things are getting back to normal. I kind of feel like, okay, yeah. guy, it's time to like, uh, <laughs> figure out how to write this stuff again. So that's, that's kind of what I'm doing now. Yeah. Do you, you, and, and it's interesting because yesterday, like in preparing for today, um, I was reading some of your stuff on the athletic and I came across sort of your intro, like, cause we all had to write, like, why am I here at the athletic? Right. And you did mention sort of this, having had those disappointments with your previous like gigs in MMA media and having like things end and what is a very um, unstable, we all know like kind of line of work. Um, But now you you did say it kind of forced you to think about this. This Is something that still like interests you to have this sort of like steady MMA writing gift, like the athletic gig, like the athletic type thing or, or, Right now, do you want to like more focus on your your novels and everything? I think if I was going to go back to like daily MMA reporting, it would have to be mm-hmm. kind of an unbelievable offer. Which got it, and that's what the, <laughs> that's what the athletic was. Athletic frankly. was like yeah. I I already thought I was done. Like after I got laid off by Bleacher mm-hmm. Report just before mm-hmm. what I think Christmas two thousand eighteen or two thousand I guess it was two thousand eighteen, right before the start of two thousand nineteen. I thought that I was just mm-hmm. done with it. And I was, I kind of made a joke to myself. Like I would only go back if I got this amazing job offer and let's face it, like that offer mm-hmm. is not coming. And then yeah. it, it did like totally out of the blue, the athletic came through and mm-hmm. like, uh, in at first blush wanted to buy the co-main event podcast and like that didn't happen, but then they ended up making us these unbelievable job offers where I was just like, 
you know, there was the little voice inside of me that since I had been down mm-hmm. that road so many times before, I was like, okay, I kind of know how this ends. Like I know yeah. how this goes, but like for this offer, I have to take it. And f- especially considering the rest of the team that was going to be there, I was yeah. like, man, if I'm not, if I pass up the opportunity to be part of that team, I will probably mm-hmm. always regret it. So I felt like I had the, the, uh, the responsibility to like find out where that job went. And frankly, Mm -hmm. it went exactly to the place that I thought it was going to go at the beginning, (laughs) just a lot more suddenly than I had thought that it was going to go. But yeah, like at this point, I already thought I was done before the athletic. And now in the wake Mm -hmm. of the athletic, I am even more uh, convinced that I'm probably done with it unless, unless some other like really amazing job offer comes around. Okay. Millionaire listener. Right. Uh, yeah, give chat <laughs> again. You have a big again, venture capitalist uh, audience, right? Yes, it's 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 surprising, but it is. Uh, it's a very niche show of mine, but it is uh, very much a hit among the, I don't know, where do venture capitalists uh, exist? Wall Street? I don't know. I don't know about money. Like, it's not. <laughs> on their yachts, I think, listening to this. I show. don't know how money happens. Uh, it's not a reality for me. So those with you with money, maybe start a website and pay us a lot of money to write for it. Uh, though you'd have to, like, really sweeten the deal for me, too, because Fembyte is actually a pretty cool space. But, yeah, so I guess what you're saying is, like, it will take a lot. <laughs> it will take yeah. something special. And, like... I've kind of resigned myself to it at this point just because I really do enjoy doing the podcast and the Patreon Mm -hmm. brings in a little bit of money. And if that is the extent of my involvement with like quote unquote MMA journalism, I'm kind of okay with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Unless the opportunity comes around to, to like uh, get back into it in a way that I felt like would meet my very specific needs, not only in terms of yeah. like getting, getting paid money, but also like kind of like doing the work that I like to do because mm-hmm. I I'm old enough and have been around the sport long enough at this point that I'm have almost no interest in, you know, writing your standard like pre fight or post fight stories, sort of like fighter X says he's going to yeah. do such and such to fighter Y like that. Mm-hmm. That's not really the kind of stuff that, that I would want to do. Like I was then that's one of the reasons why the athletic was such an amazing offer is because they kind of mm-hmm. brought, brought us in at least at the time to not do that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm far more interested in, in the more sort of in-depth long form feature writing or profiles or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it would have to not only be like a, a like a professional yeah. <laughs> payment type situation, but yeah. also like, well, like, to do a to do a really specific thing that I'm that I'm interested in. So who knows, man? Who knows? Millionaire people listening, who knows? Now you have the idea. Make it happen. <laughs> uh a little more before I let you go chat on the book thing books thing, because it fascinates me, honestly. Like as a person who is technically a writer, as in I write things for a living, like writing a full book let alone a novel, feels absolutely wild to me. Um, and you have, of course, published two. I mentioned it in my intro, but uh, those books are more recently The Blaze and uh, Champion of the World. But at this point, as you maybe start working, is maybe working or not <laughs> on your third, have you had like, so? have you sort of gotten your, process down at this point or is it oh, still God. like a fucking nightmare <laughs> um every every one is different like both the books were so different and the the yeah. writing experience was so different for both of them mm-hmm. that it's in some ways you you do feel a little bit better prepared to dive into another one because you know that you've already done it and you've proven to yourself okay this is yeah. the thing i can do but in other ways every project is so different that it almost feels like you're just starting from scratch and you have to convince yourself all over again that you can, that it's something that you can accomplish. And like, it's such a long and at times arduous process that there are definitely Mm -hmm. days 
where you're like, man, how did I ever do this before? It must have been <laughs> luck. Like, uh, but you just get like, you know, you have to keep forging ahead and like make it, make it work. And in some ways, like you have to be willing to let yourself write a bunch of bad stuff and just like leave it there knowing that you will come back later and make it better. Um, yeah. So in, in, in some ways it's much different from like, sports writing or journalism where it's like mm-hmm. you have a certain amount of time to write it and like however good you can get it that's that has to be good enough because it's mm-hmm. gonna come out the next day and a bunch of people are mm-hmm. gonna read it so like you better just make peace with it it's a different mm-hmm. kind of torture like that journalism experience is, is a very <laughs> specific kind of torture and this is a different specific kind of torture where it's like until you get involved in like a contract and you have deadlines and things like that it's kind of up to yeah. you to just endlessly make it as good as you can possibly make it. Yeah. And there's always the question of, is it good enough? And so, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a really strange, arduous, and at times really kind of like maddening process. But like when the, when it works and when it's good, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, as addictive and exciting, uh, creative thing as I've, as I've found. So I guess that's why I keep doing it. Do you think, though, that your experience as a journalist helped? Because like you said, right, like when you're when you have deadlines, when you have when a thing has to be done, like it is done, whether you like it or not, like because if it's up to us, we're probably just going to tweak and edit things forever. And you don't really have that choice. Do you think that has helped you? you know, as a novelist to sort of be able to edit yourself or to just to like maybe move on from the process a little faster that you had this experience with journalism. Yeah, absolutely. Like not only am I accustomed to working under these deadlines, um, but I think that has in many ways informed my writing style in that okay. I have like kind of a direct, straightforward writing style, even when I'm doing fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from my journalism experience, like I try yeah. to concern my concern myself a lot with uh, narrative speed and kind of like economy of language and getting mm-hmm. from point A to point B as expeditious and effectively as I can. And all of that, I think, comes mm-hmm. from journalism uh, experience and training. And then on top of all that, like, man, journalism editors are just way, way meaner than fiction editors. <laughs> And I have a lot of experience with that. And so I would like to think, and maybe I'm just kidding myself here and you would have to ask my editor, but I would like to think that I'm easy to edit from a fiction standpoint. Uh, And that, you know, the, the, the books do feel like my babies and I am emotionally close to them. But if someone comes in and is like, hey, man, we're going to change this part or we think you should change this or we're going to take this out. I have that journalist part of my brain where I'm just like, okay, that's fine. Like be my guest, mm-hmm. like change, change it, do whatever you want yeah. with it. Like that's, that's, that's your job. So you can do that. So thank God I had some really, really cruel journalism editors in the past. So now <laughs> I'm accustomed to that. Are you critical of your, I think all of us are obviously, or we wouldn't be doing what we do, but like, are you super critical of your own writing? Do you go back on stuff and sort of like, think of all the different ways in which you could have written such a thing. Like, do you beat yourself up at all about stuff you've written in the past? Of course I do. God. Yeah. You know me. (laughs) Of course I do. Uh, I had a a fiction teacher once who said, reading your own writing is like looking at your own face that. Oh yes. Sometimes you'll such a good, sometimes you'll look in the mirror and you'll think that you're beautiful and like the best looking person in the world. And sometimes you will look in the, (laughs) in the mirror and be like, my God, I'm a hideous monster. uh, And it's, I think it's true. And like, I'm really, really critical of my own work and my own stuff and myself. And Mm -hmm. like champion of the world came out during the summer of 2016 and I still Mm -hmm. can't read it. Like it is, it's a book, man. Like it's, it exists. It's a hardback and a paperback that exists in the world Mm -hmm. and has been out for five years. And I guarantee you right now, if I picked up the copy of it that is on the floor next to me at this very moment and started reading it, I would get like two sentences in and I would be like, oh shit, now I find a bunch of stuff I want to change. Like I would like literally get a pen out and start changing stuff. But like, can't can't do that anymore, man, because it's done. It's out there in the world. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, I'm to this day, if I read stuff 
that I wrote from the past. I'll, I will kind of like find things that I want to edit and change about it and think, why didn't I do it this way? It would have been much better if I'd mm-hmm. written, written it this way or that way. So never stops. That's comforting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is it though? <laughs> <laughs> very comforting if i ever decide to read a book i'll just have to like go into it knowing i will be driven to insanity and go like full uh jading salinger and just like move into the woods or whatever and just become a full-on crazy person i feel like that's inevitably what's gonna yeah. happen to me if i ever decide to do that like i admire your insanity <laughs> so thank you sometimes i feel super bad about it because i'll do like a book event or something and there's clearly all these kind of like aspiring writers there mm-hmm. and they will ask me some questions like, was the second book easier to write than the first one? And I'll have to be like, no, <laughs> it was much harder. And it's like, they get so crestfallen or they're like, they're like, what, what was the turning point? When did you realize that you could be a writer? And I'm just like, I still haven't realized it. Like no one ever makes you kneel down in front of them and like takes a sword and touches both of your shoulders and says, you're a writer now. Like, it just, it's always a, a struggle every day. And people are always just sort of like, oh, okay. Well, thank you for taking my question. I'm just like, sorry, <laughs> just, trying, just trying to be honest about how it works. I feel like it's similar with like media and stuff. Every now and then like somebody will come in like, oh, how do I like, do you have any tips to like break into MMA media and my reflex answer is don't. <laughs> what else <laughs> can to- you do? The first question I always ask is what else can you do? Can you, you dance? Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> Can, you Can you sing? <laughs> Do you have a talent? No, uh, then you could give it a shot, but I would not recommend it. Yeah, uh, just have a fallback plan is the other. <laughs> Mary Rich. No, too late for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Well, that I think is going to be it for today's show, Chad. Thank you so, so much for joining me for putting up with me even though you don't have to now that we're no longer co-workers you're, you're under no obligation to do this and you did it anyway so thank you well, so much thanks uh, for having before, me super fun oh yes it was before we go though um anything you want my five listeners to be <laughs> my immensely smaller uh listener base uh <laughs> than the one you have on the cme uh, anything you want to plug tell our listeners to watch read listen to uh, people can always find me online at, you know, on Twitter at Chad Dundas or at my website, chaddundas.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find obviously the co-main event podcast at all of those places as well. So. Thank you so much, Chad. Thank you everybody at home for listening to me. Thank you. I always thank some random person, Chad, and I think I have already thanked Keanu Reeves, but I will thank him again because he's just an illuminating and soothing presence in the world. So he deserves a second thank you. Thank you, Keanu Reeves. This has been the best camp of my life. See you all next week.